Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast about how to build strategies and tips to build happier habits into your everyday life. This week, we'll talk about why you should write it down. So obvious, so true. And how an obliger-obliger couple can create outer accountability for each other. I'm Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in Los Angeles, and with me is my sister Gretchen Rubin in New York City, who is my favorite happiness bully. That's me, Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. And Elizabeth, we swapped up the intros to get everyone in the mood for the upcoming April Fool's Day. That is a holiday that we've always enjoyed as a family, so we decided to play an extremely minor (laughs) April Fool's trek. Yes. Happy April Fool's Day. Yes. yes, plan a trick to play on your friends and family. It's very fun to do a little April Fool's Day confusion. <laughs> now, Gretchen, you just had a big anniversary. Your blog is now 12 years old. Yes, my gosh. It's hard to believe. Yes. As of March 27th, my blog has been going for 12 years. It has changed a lot over time. We have come a long way. <laughs> But um, yes. it's been a huge engine of happiness for me. Um, in fact, if anybody wants to hear about how I got the idea to start writing the blog, I write about that in my book, The Happiness Project. Also, I did for the 10th anniversary, which I cannot believe already is two years ago, I did mm. this ebook called The Best of the Happiness Project blog, 10 years of happiness, good habits, and more. And so if you want to read sort of highlights from the blog, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's, it's just, it's hard to believe it's been 12 years. It's crazy. I mean, I remember being in Kansas City and you telling me about this blog you were going to start about your happiness project. And I didn't know if I even knew what a blog was. I mean, it's so crazy. It feels so much longer than 12 years in some way. It feels like I can't imagine Gretchen Rubin, life before blog. Um, It's hard to remember. Well, that's the way it is with so many things. It feels like it's been very brief. And then also like since the dawn of time, it's weird. It's weird how things are like that. But so, Lisa, this week, our Try This at Home tip, I think we have to say this one comes from the Department of the Obvious, but it's something that's worth (laughs) really shining a spotlight on because it really works and you really regret it if you do not follow this Try This Home, which is write it down. If you have an important thought, write it down. Yes. If you care to remember something, put it down on a piece of paper, a phone, somewhere. Write it down. Yeah. And don't delay. Write it down right away. And Alyssa, this happened in kind of a super meta way, even with this idea of the Try This at Home, because you and I were talking in a separate conversation just amongst ourselves. And we mentioned like, oh, gosh, if you want to remember something, write it down. And I was like, that's a really great Try This at Home. And I wrote it down. And then later on, you know, <laughs> later in the day, I was like, well, Elizabeth had that really good try this at home. What was it? I can't remember. What What did she say? And at the time, it <laughs> seemed like such a great idea. I thought, I'll never forget it. But I did. But fortunately, I yeah. had written it down. I had to fish a piece of paper out of the trash. And I will post oh my God. I will post a, a picture of that piece of paper. That And all it says is just like write it down in very, it doesn't have any kind of it, that it's just sort of floating on the page. But that was enough. That's all I needed. When I looked at that, I was like, oh, right. That is the idea that I wanted to remember. So I was so grateful that I'd written it down because otherwise I would have been kicking myself that you'd come up with a good idea yes. and it had been lost. That is very meta, Gretch. I got to, to, to try this at home inside of try this at home inside of try this at home. Exactly, exactly. 
Yeah, and it seems like such a paradox. It seems like something that's so big or important, it can't be forgotten, but then it's forgotten. Yes. A lot of times, like, I'll do something in my life, and I go, well, that's a happiness to merit. I'll have to share that on the next episode. No way I could possibly forget this big gaffe. And then I'll, you'll say, what's your happiness to merit this week? And I will be blank. And I'm like, wait, some, I did something horrible. <laughs> and how could I have forgotten what it is? And now I really try to email myself. I mean, about anything. I mean, this happens to Sarah and me all the time with ideas for, you know, scripts. Like, yeah. we'll be walking to get coffee and we'll say, oh, hey, what about if, you know, this happens in Act 2? We'll go, oh, yeah, that's good. Okay, let's work on that when we get back. We'll walk back into our office and we're like, what were we talking about? Right. Did we have some idea? Wait, what was it? I mean, it happens on a daily basis. <laughs> the good thing is now if we're in our office, at least we know to just write it on our whiteboard. So right. we have, as I've discussed, whiteboards all over our office and they're just, there's so many things scribbled down on them that seem totally nonsensical out of context, yeah. but makes sense to us. Because now we know just if we have an idea about anything, yeah. write it down. Right, right. Yeah, it's good to always remember how easy it is to forget. Never say this is too big to be forgotten because it isn't. Everything can Never. be forgotten. I mean, yeah. and you know, the thing is develop a system and stick to it. I mean, you can use paper, you can use your phone, mm-hmm. you can have a little notebook, you can send yourself a voice memo. You can write it on a whiteboard, but you kind of need to have something everywhere you are. Like if you're going for a run, how are you going to write down something that you want to remember? If you're Mm -hmm. in your car, if you're, I will email myself something often because I check my email so regularly. I know that it will kind of enter my consciousness again. Or I have this little notebook, this little perfect notebook that I always, always carry in my backpack. And if it's a kind of note that's just too hard to type in or, or, or I just, it would be easier to write it down. I'll do that. And then I always know to check my notebook and make sure that I've sort of integrated anything that I've noted down. I think this is something a lot of musicians uh, keep, you know, notebooks by their bed or recorders because you hear about a lot of musicians waking up in the middle of the night from a dream with a song in their head um, and then just sort of singing it into um, their phone so that they'll have it in the morning. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I think, there, you know, and there's sort of two kinds of things that we want to remember, two principal things. One is something to do, like don't forget to do this task. And the other is creativity, like what you and Sarah or the musicians face, which is I don't want to forget this idea. Um, and so I, I think that both ideas really need to be preserved. They're both really important. They're both frustrating if they're lost because then you, you're either having to do more work to come up with more creative ideas or you've made your life more complicated because you've forgotten to do some important task. Yeah, and of course, part of this is you have to know to see what you've written down. Yes. Like you said, the email is good because you're going to be looking at your email, so you'll see that you emailed yourself. Yeah. But what you don't want to do, and I've done this before, definitely, is write stuff down, but then have no <laughs> idea where I wrote it or that I wrote it. You know, and, or reading and our own handwriting in the ether. Yes, you that have, is an issue for me. And for me, too. We both have such bad handwriting. You're like, well, this is clearly important enough that I felt like I had to write it down. And I have no yeah. idea what it is. Um, yes. Oh, my gosh. But there is no worse feeling um, when something goes wrong and you're like, well, you know what? This actually floated through my mind. This happened to me in the terrifying episode of Eleanor's Passport, which I talk about at length mm. in episode 31, if anybody wants to hear about that. But basically, 
Eleanor's passport had expired. And the night before we were going to fly, I realized it. And the thing that really made everything so much worse is weeks before I had had the thought, wow, you know, I think Eleanor's passport might be ready to expire. I had better go check that right away. Mm. Totally lost. Never thought about it again until the night before. And so, but if I had written a note, like check passport, then this whole kind of crazy last minute frenzy that we had to go through and change the plans and stuff, I would have avoided if I had just simply written down that one thing. But it floated through my mind and I never thought about it again. By the way, Gretchen, for those of us who do fail sometimes to write things down, because no matter how much I say I'm going to write down everything, there still will be times when I don't. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that if I walk into the room where I had the idea, I'll think of it like a lot of times maybe I'll have an idea when I'm making my coffee in the morning. Mm -hmm. So if I walk over to the coffee pot and just stand there, it'll come back (laughs) to me what it was that I was, you know, thinking um, I should write down. Try that. It works for me or like I had a thought when I was in my email and then somehow I got distracted. If I yeah, you retrace your mental steps to wherever you were. It is amazing how that works. And I remember, I mean, speaking of the challenge of keeping things written down, I remember when I was doing the research onto the life of uh, John F. Kennedy that I was doing to write my book, 40 Ways to Look at JFK. Mm. One of the things that his mother, Rose Kennedy, did was she would pin notes to her dress as reminders um, when she had tasks to do. She had nine children and a lot going on, a very busy life, so she had these things. And I've always wished that I could see a photograph (laughs) of what that looks like of her pinning notes to her dress. That's a system. You know, it's, uh, it sounds like Memento, you know, the <laughs> yes. movie Memento. Yes. I couldn't remember. <laughs> he had post-it notes all over him. Yes. And tattoos. Yes. Yes. Um, well, let us know if you do try this and if writing things down works for you. And what is the method that works best for you? Because I think, Elizabeth, this idea of whiteboards is something that maybe would appeal to people who don't necessarily have whiteboards as part of their life. But it's just like it's just such an easy way to scribble something down and then get rid of it as soon as you're done. So let us know how yeah. it works for you. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com, or as always, go to the show notes for this episode, happiercast.com slash 162 for everything related to this episode. Coming up, we've got what I would categorize as a whimsical happiness (laughs) hack, but first, this break. Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based in psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Because everyone's different, Noom adjusts to your lifestyle. They teach you the psychology behind the decisions you make and then help you keep track of everything from workouts and steps to analyze your diet and recommending healthy recipes. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and a community of other Noomers, so you have all the support you need to empower your change. Gretch, you know, I love Noom. I love all the tools it has, especially the step tracker and the weight tracker. I rely on those every day. Yep, you don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com slash happier. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash happier. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash happier to start your trial today. Yes, Elizabeth, we've talked about, you know, introducing a note of whimsy. And this is this is a hack that is just pure whimsy. There's not much to this hack. But I think it's fun, right? I love it. 
So this is an article on Time.com, and it is about find out what your name would be if you were born today. And I, in the mm-hmm. show notes, we'll have a link to this article so you can go in and enter your own information in your own name. And what it does is it figures out if you were born today or different years, what would your name have been? So it uses the popularity rankings of names over time to tell you what your name would be now or if you want to go back to 1800 and see what your name would have been then. Yeah. It's just, it's really fun. It's just funny to see. So listen, uh, if you were named today, your name would be Grace because when you were Mm. born, Elizabeth was the 19th most popular girl's name. And so today your name would be Grace. That's a great name. Yeah, I love the name Grace. And in 1980, your name would have been Julie. In 1950, mm-hmm. Bonnie. In 1930, oh, not as much of a fan of Bonnie. <laughs> in 1930, Rose, oh, which is coming back. That's and nice. 1890, Myrtle. Oh wow, Myrtle was the 19th most popular name in 1890. That's interesting. There you go. Okay, now, Gretchen, when you were born, your name was not as popular as mine. Yours Mm -hmm. was the 288th most popular girl's name. Mm -hmm. And today, your name would be Ariah, A-R-I-A-H. Yeah, that's an unusual name. Is that how we pronounce it? Uriah. Uriah. Let's see how I have it there. Uriah. That's pretty. Um, In 1980, your name would have been Marjorie. In 1950, your name would have been Arlene. In 1920, now this is an interesting one, it would have been Floy, F-L-O-Y. That's a name I've never heard. Never heard that, not one time. Yeah. In 1890, your name would have been Imogene. I kind of like Imogene. Yeah, Imogene is cool. Well, you know what, this this reminds me of something that I've noticed, a mistake that I've noticed, and for some reason I notice it a lot in young adult novels, but a person will be writing a book, about characters that's set today or like within the last 10 years, but they've picked all the wrong names. Like they're trying to pick mm-hmm. like, well, what are really popular names? But they pick, they reach for the names that were popular like when they were in middle school. And it's like, there's no one named Jennifer today. It's a name that people who are children now are not born, are not named Jennifer, even though other times that's one of the most popular names. So I think sometimes people get that, they kind of get the vibe of a story wrong because they're not really doing the research to be like, well, if I was going to pick some really popular girls' names, it wouldn't have been the ones that were popular when I was in fifth grade or whatever. Have you, right. noticed, that? Have you noticed that? Well, yeah. I mean, it's funny you mention this because something Sarah and I always do with every character is we figure out what about what year we think they were born. And then we look up most popular boy-girl names Inter- from that year. Ah, um, and we won't pick the top five usually, but you know we'll go through like the list of the hundred most popular names of you know nineteen sixty eight, uh-huh. and we'll pick one lower down on the list. But we absolutely do that with everything we write. We do that. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, well, this was just fun. You and I just got a kind of a kick out of it. Yes. It's just random, basically useless information, unless you're like writing a TV script, in which case it's extremely yeah. important. Um, but if you're curious, I will post a link to it and you can look up and see what your all the corresponding names would be. It's fun. Yeah. And now for the four tendencies tip. Now, if you don't know about the four tendencies, which is whether you're an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel, you can take the quiz, the free quiz, at happiercast.com slash quiz. More than 1.3 million people have taken this free quiz, so you can do it. 
But um, this is a tip for people who are already know what's going on with the tendencies. A very interesting tip that we got from our listener, Sammy. Yes. She says that she and her husband are both obligers. And as we've discussed, obligers often don't make good accountability partners for each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm an obliger. To remind everyone, obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And your sweetheart often counts as inner. So you sort of see that person like yourself, not as an outside influence. So these two obligers came up with a good system for them as a couple. Sammy explains... Our goals were to eat at home more and take better charge of our budget. So we decided to take turns being in charge for eating at home more. We have head chef. It's one person's job to make dinner every night and that alternates daily. You're in charge of making sure the groceries are there for your night, either by shopping before you come home or putting the groceries on the list when you know the other person might be shopping. If you want to go out to eat, we have to plan it in advance or we can do it spontaneously if the person not in charge of the cooking that night suggests it. We've only eaten out a handful of times in the past two months, which is a huge progress from at least three times a week before we started the system. And then in terms of taking better charge of their budget. We have a daily CFO, Chief Financial Officer. This alternates based on the calendar date. I'm even, he's odd. This has been so revolutionary as well. It's the CFO's job to be the main decision maker for all financial decisions, check our account and input all purchases into our budget spreadsheet. It sounds like a big job, but none of it takes very long. The biggest part of it is being the decision maker for the day. If it's my day to be CFO, it's my husband's responsibility to run all purchases by me. For example, he's at the grocery store and thinks we need a new blender. As CFO, I think about our budget and say yes or no. Before this system, neither of us were in charge and both of us were in charge. It was chaos. Anyway, basically, we take turns being in charge and hold the other person accountable. It feels so sustainable, and I can't believe how easy of a switch it was. This is genius. I mean, My gosh. This, this is a really, really good way, because this is something that many, many obligers talk about, is they're like, I'm an obliger, married to an obliger. And I have to say, many of the happiest marriages that I that I personally know of are two obligers married to each other. But there is this problem that, that, that they kind of will be like, oh... Sure, go ahead, or like, or yeah, let's eat out. You know, they don't make good accountability partners for each other. And it seems to me that maybe what's working here is there's a role. And when Mm -hmm, you're in that job, yeah, and when you're in that job, it's like that's almost like it's taking you out of yourself. And you're like, I have to be accountable to this role. And we've agreed that it's going to be good for both of us if I live up to this role. And therefore, if I don't live up to this role, the whole system's going to fall apart that we're both depending on. So I need to do my part because if I don't do my part, you won't do your part. And that's not good for you. And it's not good for me. So I have to live up to it. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. You're like, okay, I'm head chef. What does a head chef do? A head chef cooks. Oh, yeah. Therefore I must cook. Yeah. You know, Yeah. what does a CFO do? They make good financial decisions. Therefore I must make good decisions. I mean, I think that is so much how obligers think. It's just you label something like that, and then you're like, well, I must meet this expectation. Yes. Like, 
the world is, you know, watching. Right, right, um, right. So I think this is so smart. Yeah, yeah. And they both agreed to it. It would only work if both people were like, this is a system that we buy into because if one person doesn't buy in, it needs the reinforcement of the taking turns and the holding each other accountable. So I think this is a brilliant solution for a very common problem. And what I love about it, too, is I am often so struck by the imagination and the ingenuity shown by obligers and how they can find outer accountability in situations where like I, I just w- wouldn't have occurred to me. And like this yeah. is something I wouldn't have seen the power of it. But then, like you say, once you say like, oh, it's a role that you're accountable to, you see how you could use this very easily in a lot of situations if this is the kind of thing that works for you. So I think well done. Brilliant. Yes. And also, it sounds fun. Yes, I, mean, I have to exactly. say it sounds like it's almost like a game. Yes. You know, yes. Um, so it's it's kind of just adding a fun element to life, too. And yeah. making these things, which can be very mundane and a drag, like elevating them. Yes. Yes. Um, and making them kind of special um, and fun. So I, I think this is wonderful. And another thing is that obligers often do get exploited and taken advantage of. That is something that happens to obligers. This is very, very clearly fair. It's divided up mm. to be in a way that's very clearly fair. And obligers shouldn't have to shoulder more than their burdens, uh, their fair share of the burdens. And so this is good, too, because it just it makes sure that everything's fair and that it doesn't like turn into a system where one person's doing more than their fair share. Then you get into Obliger Rebellion. That's no fun. So this is a great system. Yes. So thank you, Sammy, for that uh, for tendency tip. Yes, yes. And we heard from another listener um, with a listener question. And as always, you can leave us a voicemail question at 774-277-9336, which is also 77-HAPPY-336, or drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Um, and we have one from this listener. Yeah, Gretchen, this question comes from Donna. She asks, I am a questioner and I am also a contract worker, which means I am frequently interviewing for new positions. I was wondering if you had any tips for how questioners can handle job interviews more gracefully. The traits that define me as a questioner make me a really good employee once I land a job in my chosen fields, project management and accounting. But I have the typical and somewhat ironic questioner trait of not liking to answer frivolous questions, which means I'm not all that great at job interviews. Any try this at home tips I can put to use. Thanks. (laughs) Well, as Donna mentions, this is an ironic and very common pattern among questioners, which is they get really, really annoyed if people are asking them questions. Often they don't mind teaching, but they don't like to be questioned. Uh, Mm. My husband shows this. In a big way, he really refuses to answer questions. Mm. And so I think it, the first thing is it's helpful to realize that this is a pattern. And yeah. so you can, as Donna has done, and said, like, this isn't working for me. This isn't helpful in this situation. I'm going to mindfully tackle this problem instead of pretending like, you know, it's just coming up sort of ridiculous. Oh, these people are just idiots. It's one after another asking these questions. She's like, no, this is something I need to deal with, which I think is smart. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that questioners can do is, okay, a questioner is always like, why would I do this? That is what a questioner asks. Why should I do this? And if it's not efficient, if it doesn't make sense, if it's not a good use of time and energy, they will resist. But questioners always can find a second order of justification. They can say to themselves, I think this assignment is silly and a big waste of my time, but I am going to do this assignment and I'm going to do it well because it's important for me to earn my professor's respect because I want to have a recommendation for medical school. Mm. 
So you could say here, I find these questions trivial and frivolous and perhaps <laughs> totally beside the point. And yet it's important for me to show this person that I'm a likable, cooperative, interested person who's willing to engage with others. And so I will answer these questions that I think are a big waste of time because it's important for me to make a certain impression on this person in order to get the kind of position that I want. And so to really focus in on not what is the justification for what's actually happening, but your justification for behaving a certain way in that circumstance. Yeah. Can I um, say something as someone who does interview people quite often? Yeah. A lot of times when she says, you know, frivolous questions, a lot of times the questions are frivolous. It's really just to see how do I communicate with this person? Mm -hmm. What is their demeanor? Mm -hmm. You know, do they speak well, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So she the questions are frivolous, mm-hmm. but they're not the the answers to the questions aren't really what's being looked at. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so if she doesn't think like it's if someone asks her some question that she thinks is idiotic. It's really not about the idiotic question. Right. It's about how do you guys get along? Well, so maybe that's a way is to think about, OK, so what do I want to communicate in this exchange? And to think like I want to communicate that I I'm willing to listen to others. I want to communicate that I have a sense of humor. I want to communicate that I can stay focused on a subject. I want to communicate all the achievements that I mm-hmm. that I accomplished in my last position. So again, it's like whatever is the superficial under discussion, I'm using it for my own purposes. And again, yes. for a questioner, it's like it's efficient for me because I'm communicating the things I want to communicate. You know, you might come up with like 10 things that you want to convey. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm highly reliable or, you know, I have a lot of friends or whatever it would be. Yeah, because you're right. It's not about. So what do you do in the summers? It's like nobody really cares. They just they're just trying to make conversation to get a sense of who you are. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think this is a really helpful thing for questioners to think about, because one thing that questioners often struggle with is that or do they seem like they're constructive or helpful to others or does their constant questioning or refusal to answer questions come across as sort of obstructive or disrespectful or curt or undermining? And so you need to think about, well, how can I manage my tendency in a way that it shows the strengths of the tendency, which has powerful strengths, but not get tripped up by some of the limitations of the tendency? So that's a really great question that I think a lot of questioners struggle with. Yeah. So Donna, good luck and go nail those job interviews. (laughs) Yes. Coming up, I give myself an 18 for 18 happiness demerit. But first, this break. Okay, Elizabeth, demerits and gold stars, and this is your turn for demerit. Okay, Gretch, this isn't a big one, but it is bothering me. Mm. Um, we did our list this year of 18 for 2018, mm-hmm. things, you know, 18 things we want to do this year. And I actually did two lists, so I've really got a lot yeah, to do. Yeah, you do. You set a high bar for yourself. But one of the first things on my list when I started was to go to spin class because I have really been wanting to try a spin class. One of those spin classes where they have like disco music and pulsing lights and your name on a board. It looks so fun to me. And I I know they're incredibly hard, but 
you know, since I don't mind doing something badly. It's uh-huh. okay that they're right. hard, as right. we've discussed. But anyway, I haven't done it. And Sarah was going to do it with me. Um, and we just have not done it. I thought we would knock it out like January 15th. Like mm. I thought, oh, Sarah oh. and I are going to go this Saturday to a spin class. Like we've, you know, looked at different places that have them and talked about what kind we're going to do. And we just haven't done it. Now, yes, we've been doing the pilot, which is incredibly time consuming. But nonetheless, I really it's nagging at me that I have not done this spin class. Well, you know, I think this is such an interesting example of something that is kind of surprising about 18 for 2018 or any kind of resolution like that is the fact that often the fact that something's fun or actually appeals to you doesn't necessarily mean that you're more likely to get it done. Like you might think going just sort of on the surface of things that if you looked at a list of 18 for 2018, you do the most fun or easiest things first and you would work your way through, or maybe you'd start Mm -hmm. with the hardest things or I don't know, but it's often the fact that something's, I think it's good to accept the fact that just because something is fun doesn't mean that you're less like you're more likely to get it done. You have to work on getting it done just as much if it were something as like making a dentist appointment. It's funny that way because you think it'd be easier, but it doesn't seem to really make it easier. Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, it's not going to happen in the next couple of weeks, but maybe as soon as we finish shooting our pilot, right? Um, w- you know, we can get... It's probably a scheduling thing, right? If I put yeah. it on the schedule, then yeah. I'll do it. Right. Maybe the first week off or something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right, Gretch, what is your gold star this week? I know. I'm so excited about this gold star. So one of the things that's just sort of been nagging me in the back of my mind as you know you have these things is so jamie and i have like prescription medication that you know like we got it like he had knee surgery and he got it and he never used it up or it's like you know anyway just pill bottles of stuff that we don't need or is expired and i didn't know what to do with it i mean you're not supposed to flush it down your toilet i didn't want to just put it in the trash and so it just sat in our medicine cabinet Mm. taking up extremely valuable real estate because i was sort of in this paralysis of like i don't know what Mm. to do with it so then one day I go into this Dwayne Reed and like in New York City, at least Dwayne Reed also is which is owned by Walgreens. They are literally like one a block. If, I, if I'm like yes. in a place and I'm like, there's not a drugstore within one block. I feel outraged. Like, where is the, you know, yeah. so they're everywhere. But this is like one of the really good ones. It's a, one of the best Dwayne Reeds. And I walk in to like, I don't know, buy Q-tips or something. And they had this like a super reinforced trash can. And it was a secure bin for the disposal of prescription medication mm. or or um, expired over-the-counter medication. And it was a bin where if you put something in, you can't get it out. You know, the whole thing is right, locked right. up and it only goes one way. Yeah. And so I was so excited. And it was at, it was right by Inform, Elizabeth, where we do our weight training. Mm. And um, so I go there every week. So the next week I, I had gone through our medicine cabinet and I had many a whole bag full of pill bottles. And it was such, so satisfying to be like, I'm doing exactly what I should be doing with this. I'm putting it here. I'm getting it off my shelves, off my conscience and getting rid of it in a really responsible way. And so I was just so happy that Dwayne Reed had made it so easy by just like having this thing out in the middle of the store um, so I could just, you know, cross it off my list. So that's that, such a good feeling to yes. have like a clean medicine cabinet. I know. Free of old pill bottles. Yes. Oh, it was a it was a great feeling. And to feel like I did it responsibly because I was always like, what yes. are you supposed to do with this stuff? You know, there's some things you're only supposed to dispose of in certain ways. And it's always very stressful. Well, now they just need one of those same things for electronics because there's so many things like you're not supposed to just throw away electronics. But I never know where they're supposed to go. 
So we just have like drawers of old electronics. I think Best Buy does that. The Best Buy in my ah. neighborhood does that. Yeah, they will accept okay. certain kinds of electronics. Yes. Well, and that is it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Write it down. You know it's true. Let us know if you tried it and if it worked for you. Thank you to our producer, Odelia Rubin. Also, thank you to Kristen Meinzer and Andy Bowers of Panoply. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Instagram at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Liz Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. If you like the show, we so appreciate it if you tell a friend or subscribe or rate or review the podcast. The resources for this week, I have five 21-day projects because I really do think in 21 days you can actually make steps to make yourself happier without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. So I will put links to those. Um, four, there's a little bit of a charge, and then one is a freebie if you want to just check it out. Um, there's one for strategies of habit change, know yourself better, declutter, quit yelling at your kids, <laughs> cope with a difficult person, and then the free one is strengthening relationships. So I'll put the links to that in the show notes if you're curious to try that. Plus, I have to remind everybody about our mugs, Elizabeth. You're such a fan mm. of mugs. We, of course, yes. had to have mugs. So we have mugs for each tendency along with the motto for each tendency, which I love motto so much. I will put a link in the show notes or you can just go to the shop area on the GretchenRubin.com site. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and Upward.